At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yep. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and I'm here with my good friend, Jesse Savage. Before we get into it, let's just take care of a little business. What do you say? Number one, number one, I want to thank my sponsors, uh, Broadback Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder. It's an awesome machine made by knife makers for knife makers, but also um, metal workers, woodworkers, sculptors. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's, a, it's an awesome machine for removing material and if you go to broadbackironworks.com you can get discounts they make different arms so what a 2x72 grinder is it's a machine that that moves a 2 inch by 72 inch abrasive belt there's different kind of belt sizes and different grits and all that stuff like that but the 2x72 grinder is really really the all-in-one grinder for any type of moving of material so go to broadbackironworks.com check out what they have they have packages that include the machine and attachments. They have all sorts of different types of attachments. And if you put in promo code KNIFETALK200, you're going to get $200 off any of their grinder packages. Uh, and if you put in KNIFETALK100, you get $100 off their sharpening system, their surface grinder, and their leather sewing machine. So thank you, Broadback. They are awesome. And if you want to hear about the story of Broadback Ironworks, I interviewed Vince and Ryan uh, a number of months ago. It was a really interesting story how they created Broadback Ironworks. Next is Evenheat. Evenheat is the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. Go to evenheat-kiln.com to see what we're talking about. If you're making a knife, you're making swords, if you're making any kind of edge tier, uh edge tools or hammers or axes you're going to need to heat treat your oven that means you're taking the steel or the whatever the material up to its critical temperature the iron carbide is going to solution and then you quench down converting austenite to martensite that's the that's the, that's how you heat treat ladies and germs and if you want to get sure you're on the money especially if you got stainless or you got any kind of carbon steel you want to be on the money money you got to get yourself a even heat even heat kiln uh, Spence and the family are awesome. The customer service is unbelievable. And if you go to uh, Knife Talk, they have different. Uh, they have a sponsor where you can get seventy-five dollars off and free shipping. So go get yourself one of them even heats and stop playing. You know what I'm saying? Next is Axe Wax. Axe Wax All Natural Food Safe Wax for your axe. If you gotta cover it with something, you might as well use Axe Wax. I use it for all the wood. All my handles, if I'm using carbon steel, if I'm using Damascus, I always use Axe Wax, and it's great. And I love it, and it makes a, a great finish. It's food safe, so I don't have to worry about all the stuff that, the icky stuff that might be on your knife, especially if you're making culinary stuff. So if you go to axewax.us, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. If you go to UK Knife Supplies in the UK, 
Toby's taking t- full blast 10 for 10% off. EU, knifematerials.at. Keith Colby's taking 10% off with full blast 10. And if you're in Australia, go to artisansupply.com.au. That's Gamico. They're taking full blast 10. And my next sponsor, nordicedge.com.au. They're taking full blast 10. I love Axe Wax. It's great. And I believe in it, and it's terrific, and I am very honored to be involved with a small company in the United States that it's shipping globally, shipping globally. So awesome job, Axe Wax. I'm with you. Speaking of globally, NordicEdge.com is a company in Australia. They make beautiful equipment and stuff for knife makers getting into knife making, pros, seasoned vets. They have all sorts of knife making supplies, braces, grinders, toolings, kits, handle materials, parts, hammers, all that stuff. If you're a seasoned vet, if you're a beginner, this is the place to go. Let's just say you're sitting at home, you're listening to this podcast, you're like, yeah, I really want to make a knife, but I don't have any of this stuff. Go to nordicedge.com.au and get yourself one of them knife blades that's already heat treated and ground, slap a handle on it and see what you think. It's the best way to get involved. Uh, and if you, just to let you know, they're involved with a lot of great knife makers. Uh, Mert Tansu, and they created the Big Mert File Guide. It's an awesome file guide that is available in the United States at knifekit.com. And it, it knifekits.com in Atlanta. And it's a great file guide, uh, and uh, Mert's the man. If they're working with Mert, <laughs> listen, trust me. If you're in Australia and you're thinking, well, what's going on with uh, Nordic Edge? If they're working with Mert Tansu... That means they're not playing. They're not playing. So Bjorn and the guys are doing an awesome job. I really appreciate their support, and uh, it's definitely worth a try. Go check out nordicedge.com.au and see what they got. And um, you will get 10% off your Axe Wax with Full Blast 10. So thank you once again to Nordic Edge. Nordic Edge, you guys rule. And if you're in, if you're in Canada or United States and you want to get some knife-making supplies, go get yourself over to maritimeknifesupply.ca, all your knife-making needs, belts, braces, steels, cords, forges, kilns, presses, heat-treating ovens, anvils, anything you need, they have Axe Wax. They have all the TR Maker stuff, and they are shipping in the United States and Canada, and the, it's, as fast as, it's as fast as anybody else. So go get yourself one of them. Uh, get yourself anything you need to resupply or to start in your knife-making needs. If you're in the United States, you're in Canada, go check them out. And Lawrence is unbelievable. Lawrence is really, he is on top of everything. Uh, if you need something or if you're in Australia, you thought, you know what, I really want to get a, a brooch when I'm making full ta- uh, hidden tang knives. I need to cut into that slot. You, I need a brooch, but nobody, I, can, I don't want to have to buy one in the United States. Go reach out to Lawrence, and Lawrence is going to say over at Maritime Knives, why are you going to say, I got a brooch? So go get yourself over to him. If you want to get the great book, my friend, Dr. Laren Thomas's book, My Knife Engineering, that's over there too. So go check out maritime knife supply and let them know that you appreciate their support in the knife making world speaking of support in the knife making world i have to tell you that trojan horse forge they're unbelievable trojan horse forge they're the makers of the stable rail knife finishing vice and they made this vice and it is unbelievable i have a couple of them and i i threw away all my two by fours i threw away everything and i'm making my knives with the stable rail knife finishing vice you can clamp on, if you think, okay, a knife finishing vice, big deal, it's just for handles. No, it, they have plates that, that bolt on that support your knife if you're making a full tang knife, hidden tang knife, 
you're making a curved knife, if you're making uh, integral bolster, you can support your knife on this stable rail knife finishing vise, and you can make sure that you can hand sand your knife, and then when you have the handle on, you can finish your knife with this vise, and it's great. And if you go to trojanhorseforge.com, and you put in the promo code full blast, you're going to get free shipping in the United States. These are in bomb-proof boxes. Tons of attachments, tons of equipment, tons of bolts and, and, and rubber gaskets and all, everything you need to be a professional, to do a professional job and to make your life easier. It makes your life, this vice makes your life easier. So why don't you make it live a little, guys and gals, live a little. Why are you putting yourself through all this to, to, to have your life not be as comfortable as possible? Get yourself one of them stable rail knife finishing vices and from uh, Trojan Horse Forge. And last but certainly not least, I have to thank uh, Total Boat. Total Boat, baby. Totalboat.com. They're the makers of adhesives, paints, primers, polishing compounds. They started out for boaters and DIYers, people in their garages, fixing their boats up to make sure that they needed products that they could patch up their boats so their boats would float in the water. And Total Boat dealt with them. And then Total Boat started to realize, hey, there are these wackos making river tables. And then people, all these makers need all this weird, our weird stuff to make their weird stuff. So if you go to TotalBoat.com, you put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off. And let me tell you what I've just done. I made 27 chef knives. I made it with the, with the new Cosmic Drift handles. And they look awesome. And I decided that I was going to only use Total Boat to uh, to mount the blades into the handles and I use the total boat system I love the total boat system it, it it hardened everything very very well I had no problems in terms of temperature I had no problems in terms of drying time it was very user friendly I use all the total boat for all the the mounting of all these knives and I'm really happy with the how they turned out they finished off great and I'm excited so I would highly suggest you use total boat give it a try get the 10% off it's very user-friendly and listen if guys like Keith Deese and Derek from Alden Jimmy DeResta Keith Mitchell all them Keiths everybody's you Jimmy DeResta's you know taking his dead animals and shoving it in the total boat and making sculptures out of it so I mean if it's good enough for him it's good enough for you don't you think don't you think I think so. So greet yourself some of that total boat and you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? So I want to thank all my sponsors. Uh, it's been really great. You guys have been amazing. And um, thank you to the listeners for handling all my nonsense and dealing with all this and sp supporting my sponsors. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Without any further ado... Um, the last three episodes, usually when I do Full Blast podcast, I try to make every episode uh, singular. And a lot of that's because it's like sometimes you will listen to a new podcast. You don't want to have to know the backstory of people. And you don't want to have to know like, you know, ins and outs and, you know, the back office. You don't want to have to be like, oh, well, who's that guy? And he told an inside joke that I got to listen to. I try to make it very singular. The last three episodes I did, I called uh, Conduit to Greatness. Not conduit to generations, my bad. And I wanted to talk to three master bladesmiths in regards to their role as a modern-day blacksmith or modern-day bladesmith, the modern-day knife maker, and what our role is over time. Now, this also comes from my next guest is someone I've been talking about this issue for the past, got to be close to 10 years. 10 years, Jesse Savage is one of my close friends, 
He is a great mind in blacksmithing. He's a great mind in terms of history and generations and how we look at the world. And he and I have been talking about this for a long time, posing it on different podcasts. Anytime he's got a podcast, we kind of talk about like our guests and we say, hey, pose the question, what's the role of the modern day blacksmith? to see what the guest response is. And over time, we've kind of had a lot of different responses. So I have to finish off this three-piece Conduit to Generations with my good friend, Jesse Savage. Jesse, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm tired, my buddy. I'm tired. Yeah, it's early. I'm tired. It's early. early, But but I'm psyched because for you, I I wake up at any time for you. Yeah, um, what is it? How have you been? Good. I mean, last night was a little crazy. We got, uh, well, this past week we had, um, I went to Boston the first time because my daughter's um, graduating this year from MassArt, um, and she had her senior thesis, thesis show. Um, so we ran down to that, and then I had to run, my 19-year-old is doing um, a language immersion uh, program in Seville, Spain. Wow. Um and so, you know, she's kind of kind of been a sheltered kid. She's done, like, she did stay in Boston a little bit on her own in her sister's apartment over the summer. But for the most part, she just kind of spends her time with horses and is, like, in the horse barn and takes care, takes care of uh, horses for, uh, for her job. And uh, so her on her own going to Seville was a little bit nerve-wracking. So, but but we it all up, worked well, out. It all worked out. She got there, and um, it was a little bit of a... Uh, jumble to get her to where she needed to be but she's finally at the um host uh family house uh, i wanted so to tell she, you i saw the images that your daughter did for the art show she's really talented she's yeah she's she is unbelievable she asked me to do those like so i made like fabricated the frames for her and um she asked me to do them and i was like ah, you know i'm like i don't know if i can make frames like we but we used to do like mirrors and stuff and vermont yep. forgings yeah so you just make a basic frame but um what i did was because the the big one I made like six of them like the small ones are like 14 inches in diameter and the big one is i can't remember exactly it, it must be like three feet um it's pretty big and when i ordered the glass for it i said to the um to the glass cutter, I was like, you guys got to give me plexiglass. And they're like, no, 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 you're not going to, the image isn't going to be as good. It's going to scratch. I'm like, I'm telling you, we got to move these things all around a college campus. I got to frame them in Vermont. And then, you know, right. I was like, give me plexiglass. If it's got a scratch, it's not the end of the world. I can swap that out later. Um, Did you make but, them out of angle? No, I had, I had them uh, cut out like the circles and then I just like, you know, cold vented it around and, um, welded up like a you know like the side as if it was angle and then um you know welded on like a place for it to hang i mean they're they're pretty simple yeah um and then i uh crazy glued the plexiglass in place and then i bought um because i was trying to think of like how do you push it forward without so i was thinking overthinking it and thinking like i'll have to make some sort of bracket or tensioner or something something that holds the image in um and then it dawned on me i was like all you need is magnets so i bought like those uh 130 pound earth magnets huh. and they they sucked right through the cardboard backing with the print and the plexiglass and worked great i wish you called me and this actually brings up an interesting kind of the whole idea of metalworking in general 
That's right. the last metal shop I was at. It was a fabrication shop. And all we did were make um, frames for, huh. we made frames for, 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 we made a lot of frames for, for images, but we also made a lot of frames for um, glass panels to go into storefronts. So right. like nowadays, storefronts are aluminum extrusions, and then you'll have a lot, you'll have glass plates, and then these aluminum companies will make these uh, extrusions that fit glass. And then so when you're measuring glass, you 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 figure out the sizing of your 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 joists and everything like that, and then you figure out the extrusions, and then you can you measure glass, you measure the glass. And what we were finding out was. The times we were making any type of ornamental metalwork for a building or a storefront, we were making these frames for glass windows. And the idea was was that it was meant to look old. Huh. It was meant to look old. And what we were finding was most of the ornamental ironwork we were doing for the modern day design was we were more like glazers. We were more glass workers and glazers than we were metal workers. Hmm. So it's like, it's interesting that like you were making, I, I, I love the, I love the fact that you did that. For, I love the fact that your daughter asked you to do that for you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, I didn't think about it at the time. I just kept thinking like, oh God, if this doesn't work out, like, you know. <laughs> well, she would have been, she would have been, I mean, the work stands yeah. on its own. I mean, you know, it's not the. It the... does, but I was like, she wanted me to do it. So I was like, oh, we'll do it. And then um, it was kind of the last minute by the time I got the, the glass cut and she came home from Boston and we put everything together and ran her back down to the city. But um, yeah, that was, it was super cool to go see the show. I can't believe how fast those four years went. But, I'm um, like dreading it. I'm about to send my daughter out to uh, California for college. Yeah, so that's so yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Well, you you'll be back and forth quite a bit. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I really can't afford to go a lot. But I mean, no. at the same time, yeah, good. you know, we're gonna right. and we also, you know, we're also of the mind of like I didn't want my parents visiting me in college. You know, it's like oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, well, I had a different relationship with my family. Mm -hmm. than my kid has with us but at the same time it's like i want her to kind of do her thing she's she's outgrown this town for for years and she's ready to do her thing and i'm not too worried about her actually in the past you know three years she started oh uh, not three years that's not true the past year she's started to go into the city into new york city by herself and she's become very attuned to how to take the train in the city and she loves taking the subway and she's very aware and she's very like intrepid and she's we've kind of trained her right i try to train her how to use the subway and she's really enjoying it and so I, i'm really yeah that's awesome she's excited for 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 that and actually you know what weird enough you know thinking about the last three episodes where we're talking about generations and you know i really mm -hmm. wanted to talk to you after all this because you have such a strong uh, connection to generations and to history and the generations of your family uh, on uh, February 1st, which was last week, would have been my father's 100th birthday. Wow. Which is crazy. crazy. Yeah, that's a lot. And the crazy part is, the real crazy part, and as a father, as a young father, you're going to feel the same way. He had me when he was 50. So, right, so there is this time in our lives. So from the beginning of December to the, to the 1st of February, he and I will be exactly, he'll be 100 and I'll be 50. 
So it's this weird. And then my sister, my sister just is 70. Mm-hmm. So there's this like strain, these like the new the numerical generations. And the weird thing is, is you know, thinking about this concept of generations. So my dad was 50 when I was born, and and um, he was he was exactly my age, 30 when I had when I had my daughter. She was I was 30, and when my dad had my sister, my first sister. She, he had her when he was 32. So there's these like weird, like generational, like anomalies. Yeah. Right. I think, well, my, like my first born, um, was, I was 25 when she was born. Um, and my father was the same age when he had me, you know, my parents did. Don't you think that's, don't you think that's kind of like. It is weird. There's a little weirdo numerology stuff. Yeah. There, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, when we think about like generational stuff, it's like, what is the gener, you know, the, where is the generations and then how do things, you know, transpire? You know, I know that like, I, I t- last episode I had Nick Rossi on mm-hmm. and we were talking about, we were talking about, there's almost like this new golden age in blacksmithing and bladesmithing. And I'm just going to use blacksmithing and bladesmithing as for this episode. I'm just going to use those expressions because it's like, obviously it's more than that. But with social media, it's almost like, so what, you know, you and I met on on Instagram, right? So like what, eight years ago, something like that? Yeah. Something like that. There was like this, there's this like generational change, even in the last eight years. That oh, he, it's huge. That he yeah. know. I mean, Nick has been a Nick Rossi has been a a, black, a bladesmithing teacher for as long as as long as before Instagram. And I I was at uh, the Center for Metal Arts doing teaching, involved mm-hmm. with teaching before social media. The difference between then, like let's say just just say ten years ago to now, it's almost two different animals. It is. It's crazy. I mean, I only got on Instagram way back in the day because my kids were on it and um just to you know to check up on them and i was like holy cow there's blacksmiths and online like what's that about yeah (laughs) i know (laughs) i literally thought i before social media i thought i was like i was like in a rare i mean here's how sheltered i was i only thought that the only hammers that were really being used today were hoffy hammers like i had no i had no other experience just because i wasn't exposed to anything other than that yeah. No, I mean, I was like pretty sheltered too, I would think to a point just at like Vermont foraging. So I didn't really know any other blacksmith stuff other than like a couple guys that were around, but they were all older. You know, it wasn't a newer generation. Right. Doing it. Right. But so, it, what you, yeah. what you're seeing now is I, I really thought about all three episodes were interesting. Having Jason Knight on uh, Jordan Lamote and, Nick Rossi at first uh, just the backstory was at first I thought um so Jason Knight had had a fire we're friends I reached out to him saying if we if you need us to do anything I know that there were some GoFundMes for his family and we I told them that we talked about it on Knife Talk and we talked about it I talked about it on Full Blast and I said if you need anything let me know and he goes I'd love to come on the podcast sometime so I'm like okay great and then I thought all right well I was I had him on and I was thinking about his work and I was thinking about how as a master bladesmith, how his creating the kukri and the, the history behind the kukri, the, the curved knife that he made that's, you know, synonymous with Nepalese, the kirkers and stuff like that. 
And I was thinking about how do I follow that up? And then at the same time, I've been waiting to talk to Jordan Lamote for quite a while because I knew he was in, in uh, India and I've been messaging him saying, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? And he finally came home and I was like, ah, you know what? That'd be perfect. I want to get him before anybody else does. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do three Master Bladesmiths in a row. And then I'm just thinking like, let's see if I can get three Master Bladesmiths in a row. And I thought, well, what's, so what? What's the big deal? And then I started talking to Jason, and I thought I, the idea of is what is our role as the modern-day bladesmith, modern-day blacksmith, and the, the idea of what is our role in terms of as teachers, as students, as you know, traveling through time. And having Nick on really kind of, Nick Rossi really had this, I would say that it capped everything off because this goes back to what you and I always ask, which is what is the role of the modern day blacksmith? And it just mm -hmm. seems as though we're just kind of like the conduit, the con when I thought of the conduit to generations, it was just because we're in the present and we're kind of like, we're just, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I thought think? it was interesting because it was uh, three different, completely different perspectives on, um, in different ages. Yeah. Uh, and looking at it. Um, I, I, you know, I think with the role of like, I mean, I don't know as far as knives, but in blacksmithing in general, I think, or anything that you make and create or trying to sell, um, it's, I think you have to define like kind of your mission statement on like what it is, like what your end goal is, like what you want, what it is you want out of it. Because um, I think like, you know, you could, your goal could just be doing like the stuff I was doing before, like, you know, the wholesaling to retail stores and not doing custom work, or you could be doing, you could do custom work, or you could do, um, you know, just craft fairs and farmer's markets, or you could take it to a level like um, the owner and founder of Patagonia, where, you know, he was forging all the ice climbing and rock climbing stuff and selling it to his friends and built this, you know, multi-million dollar business you know, based on blacksmithing. So it's like, that's really the best example I would think would be him um, taking Eve, it to that level. Eve Schonard is such a fascinating character. And if you read his books, the blacksmithing part is such a small part of his yeah, development. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. I kind of wanted, I just didn't want to hear about the Patagonia fleeces. I wanted to hear about like how he, for, so Eve Schonard, young guy, I guess, I think his family was French Canadian. I'm not hundred percent sure. He was like not good in school. He just didn't like, you know, he was kind of like a delinquent to a certain degree. And he st helped start, you know, the idea of rock climbing as a recreational sport, <clears throat> a recreational sport. And then he learned how to forge pitons. Pitons were these little steel, um, it's, it's a steel bar that has, has, a, has a twist in it, a little bit of angle with a, a pop with a hole that's punched and drift. So you can put the rope, the, the rope through, right. and then you drive it into a crevice, and then you can put your rope through it, and then it helps you create safety for when you're climbing. And he had a little giant, and he had a company called, oh. what is it, the Great Pacific Ironworks? That's what it was, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. Great Pacific Ironworks, and he would forge pitons and ice climbing gear for recreate and then and then he learned how to do it safely and then he got started to worry about the safety of it all and then he kind of he created a name for himself for making these things for a very specific 
small community yeah, in the 60s. Yeah, that niche. Yeah. Total niche. And then all of a sudden it just came to the idea of like, he came to the idea of, well, when you knock these things in the rock, there's no way to get them out. So he started to like, he, I think he felt the need from what I understand. He felt the need that, you know, you're just like destroying the outside and you're leaving all this garbage. And it's like, not very, you know, it's not very economic, you know, ecological to just be, you know, driving steel spikes in the rocks and then leaving them there. Right. But it's, he's probably one of the most innovate in terms of like taking blacksmithing and then kind of following through you. He's created this kind of niche market. He created this niche world of, you know, high tech, high tech. And then I can, I believe from what I understand from reading his book, they started to create these, uh, these types of other types of like expanding pitons where you you pull like a, a wire and then it closes and then when you insert it in the crevice and you release the wire it expands like a kind of a, a yeah, reusable like a grappling sheet, hook sheet rock screw or something yeah exactly exactly yeah. but i mean you you think about like the role of the modern day blacksmith i mean he filled a need that he didn't you i might not even know that was there exactly and i think that he's probably the best example of um you know what you can do with it and not necessarily making rock climbing stuff but anything like that um uh, just to you know i mean blacksmiths have always reinvented the wheel in a way you know um, the bike you know the guy who made the first set of way scripts or um you know any of that stuff all started in the blacksmith shop even nasa putting somebody on the moon you know i i actually have I actually have a replicate a replication of the hammer that they used on the moon landing. Really? Oh, dude, I th- I'm gonna have a, th- we're gonna talk about Bree Pettis um, towards the end, but so my friend Bree Pettis is um, is a has a company called Bantam Tools, and they make um, they make C- t- uh, desktop CNC machines. He's like cutting edge of technology. We're going to talk about something towards the end of the day, but I had him and he, so it's all CNC. It's all computer. It's all programming. He's like a futurist. He's a futurist. And he was obsessed with NASA is obsessed with the moon landing, obsessed with like space is he, t- I was at his shop uh, two weeks ago and he told me that their goal for this year is to make something that's going to go into space. And you have to, you that's can't great, just yeah. like you, you have to have a, you have to have like certain like regulations and designations and to, as a company to be able to make something that can go into space. They can't yeah, call sure. you up Jesse and say, we want you to forge us something for space. It ain't going to happen. You ha- there's no. like, there's like bureaucracy involved. Sure. So he'd been a success with space and he, he came to the shop. We forged a friction folder. It was really the most, I wanted to show him because part of me is annoyed at the future stuff. Like I'm, part of me is annoyed at the CNC and the routing. It's just like I hear a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, you know, you know it's like taking out the the dumb work. It's like, ah, eh, it's taking out some of the skilled labor if you ask me." But fine. So he he took. I wanted him to just use the hammer. We really only touched the grinder for maybe ten minutes maximum. And I wanted him to show that we're not using calipers, we're not using, you know, thows, we're just going to, you know, forge these friction folders. And and he gave me, he started to do this replication, these replicate replicates of these hammers that they used to, on the moon. And he brought it to me thinking, I think that you'd appreciate this. 
And when he handed it to me, the first thing I thought of, so I'll just to explain what the hammer looks like, and I'll post it. If you follow uh, Full Blast Podcast on Instagram, um, I'll post it in the in the picture. So, so the hammer is a cylindrical handle huh. with the there's what's you know that uh, I think it's called knurling. It's when you yeah knurling is like that crisscross all the way around the handle. You know what I'm saying? Is that really? yeah? Send me, do you have it right there? Send me a picture of it. Uh well, I don't have it. I mean, I okay. gotta get out of the car. Uh, let, let me. No, it's, it's, it's 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 uh, I you know what? Let me just let me. I'll, I'll I'll find it and I'll send it to you. So so what happened was was so it has this knurling on it, and the hammer handle has it it, it tapers to the top. I'm gonna I'm gonna find this right now. You 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 put me on. You put me on. That's fine. I, I'm gonna send it to you on Instagram. Oh, here it is. Okay. All right, I'm sending you to on Instagram. Uh, here we go, Jesse. This is how we do a podcast, ladies and germs. Um, okay, I send it to you. All right, so it has this knurling on it, and then the hammer. It looks almost like a claw hammer. It looks oh, yeah. like a claw hammer because it has a, a peen, a cross peen on the top. You know, but it's like it's almost like a reverse French cross peen. You know, like a French style cross peen has, you know, it breaks, but it the the ledge is on the, the ledge is on the top, and then it, the but this is more it looks like a claw hammer without the claw. Yeah, it's definitely a machinist like hammer. Right, and yeah. he was showing it to me, and I was, and we were looking at it, and we were talking about hammers. We were talking about you know, like, and I said the first thing I said to him was, and then and the bottom clips into like a pole for I don't know for whatever, and it was meant for like a normal duty moon hammer, I guess to like make samples and stuff like that. But the first thing I said to him, I was like, you could, he said, I hope you use this hammer. I'm like, I can't use this hammer. He's like, why not? I said, because it's going to, it's round. I said, the hammer, the hammer is going to slide around in my hand. And I explained to him that this hammer was developed by scientists because obviously these are people who ever forged, ever worked with their hands before. And the idea was was they were making this hammer specifically for people in spacesuits with big gloves. Yeah, I was gonna say like the vibration would be a lot with that steel handle. Like, I think it that, would have been better with a plastic. I think that he I think that they were he was he was using this is not the a real you know, this was his his interpretation based on pictures and the evidence that he Yeah, had. I'm looking at your photo of the moon whatever like their image of it and the handle does look different in that picture i, I think he did, i think he did the best he could in order to kind of like right have something close but it, the idea was it was a sample hammer but it was kind of neat because it was this idea of like where did these the idea it's almost like this evolution in terms of like how we see things from the past and we use them for the future like it was, a, I found it to be, I found the whole, you know, using, creating tools that were going to tran, be transformative on Earth, and then maybe we need something like that when we go to space. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, what were we talking about before we talked about this goddamn hammer? <laughs> I think that one of the... One we got the, sidetracked. No, I got sidetracked. Well, yeah. One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting when we were talking to Nick... We were talking about the romanticism of being a bladesmith. And we were talking about the 50 years ago, there wasn't these recreational classes. And one of the things, you know, recreational classes for uh, industrial 
right? Or in this industrial pursuit. I think he, he made a really good point in saying that and pointing out the fact that, and I'm guilty of the same thing of romanticizing the idea of blacksmithing and being in my shop and making stuff and being excited about it. Um, but, you know, for a lot of guys, like he said, that, you know, it was just a nine to five job. Um, we you know, it's like it's, it's almost as if we've created a fantasy of what it was like being a blacksmith back in the day. In a way, we ha- I mean, some of us have. I think um, I think a lot of us that are making and creating this stuff are, you know, artistic and um, maybe a little bit romantically minded in that aspect. It's it, um, it's like a fantasy. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's a fantasy of what people. I mean, when back in the day, I mean, I've talked to Alex Pohl when he did a great book on uh, what it was like being a journeyman back in the day you know, and how hard it was. And you were an indentured servant and you had to do all these things. And it wasn't like back, you know, I don't even, a hundred years ago, it wasn't like, I feel like I need to express myself creatively. I think I want to be a blacksmith. No, it was a trade. It was a trade and a career. Right. And most likely it, it wasn't that creative, frankly, I would imagine. What do you think? Um... I think there were people, I feel like we had this conversation before, we probably have, but the, um, I think there were people that, you know, uh, were creative with it. I mean, like farriers, for example, that would have access to their own, you know, tools and stuff where they could, you know, make something for their house or, um, you know, different things like that. Whereas like an industrial blacksmith, um, may not have access and free time to go use that equipment. Or the or the inclination. No, I I mean it's I think it was definitely a nine to five job. But I mean you look at like the stuff at uh, Center for Metal Arts and like those old tongs and everything that Pat's like you know so proud to to have and use. Um, it's you could tell like those guys just they definitely cared about what they forged because you can make a set of tongs that will hold bar stock and they they don't need to be pretty. Right. And, you know, you don't need to spend all that time like cleaning them up and, and forging them exactly, you know, the same. And um, but they they did. So I, I think I think they enjoyed it too. I mean, you could kind of see it in in that aspect of the work. But um, yeah, I think you know we've grown up in a different generation and the different movies, and it's it's definitely easy to romanticize the whole thing. Um, I mean. If you, I mean, we talk about this all nonstop, but if you talk, if you talk to a, like a civilian or someone who has no idea of what a blacksmith is and you say you're a blacksmith, they automatically say, oh, you shoe horses, which is like, it's because of, it's because of, you know, popular culture is only really kind of, it hasn't even scratched the surface in regards to how interesting this is, you know, except for the last eight years forge and fire created something and instagram is creating something that it is, is yeah. really really far more interesting than people say i just saw a um there was a news program uh i think cbs did a saturday morning show on <clears throat> murray carter you know murray murray carter is no murray carter has a is um i think he's a ma- i think he's a master bladesmith and i'm pretty sure he's he's a uh, bladesmith out in idaho and he's famous for he's famous because I th- I don't he's famous a famous knife maker Carter Cutlery is very famous, hmm. and this and this 
news program spent, sent their guy and they forged a knife and they talked oh, about Oh, yeah, I saw a part of that on the news. It's yeah, great. I, I mean, that. it was really, really well done. It was in-depth, and they what they did was instead of just doing one of these bullshit pieces where they're just like, oh, he's forging fire. They actually had the guy make the knife, and he talked about you know his time in Japan. He yeah, talked about a right. rough childhood, and he talked yeah. about the – and they did a really, really great job, and – the t- it was really it was very very well done very well done and it was very clear that the guy who was involved with the piece was into it it wasn't just like let's just knock the I've been involved no yeah he was really excited about taking it home as I remember <clears throat> and then when the uh, and then at the end when they brought back went back to the studio they were talking to <clears throat> talking to him and he was saying this is one of the most the most important things that have happened in my life. He said, this was the most enjoyable, memorable experiences of my life. And, wow. they, and they were like, whoa. And they were, and it was just like, it was like surprise and shock, but it was so well done. I've been involved with pieces where, and this is something I think that in popular culture now, that I think that when we see Forge and Fire, or when we see these TV shows and we say, ah, oh, that's bullshit, that's nothing. Most of these, most of these film companies, most of these TV companies don't really have it, don't really have, an interest in what they're doing, they're just trying to knock out an episode. Yeah. I've been involved with a piece where they're like, oh, let's get this B-roll, let's get this C-roll, let's get this picture, let's get this picture. And they, they could give a shit. Like the, the the camera guy was hungover. The other guy was like he was ready to go to the next job. They, they, they didn't have a, you know, um, a horse, uh, a dog in the fight to make it as interesting as possible. So when you do something like the, what they did with Murray Carter, which was definitely, you should definitely watch. If you're a knife maker, you're not going to say this thing sucked. This thing was I mean, probably one of the best representations of what's being done in, in, you know, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best things I've seen in a long, long time. And what it shows you is, is that there has been really no representation of this really amazing craft. I mean, you think about it, and this is something that I've said for a long time, you and I have been talking about it. There's not a lot of architectural ironwork that is forged steel that is at the scale of the way it was in the 20s or back in the Art Nouveau, Art Deco stages. There's no Samuel Yellen studio. Nothing Samuel, Samuel Yellen was considered one of the the pioneers not the pioneers but i mean his design style and his innovation was so intrinsic to the design of the time right and there's nothing like that now you know no there there is i mean i mean you could say albert paley was kind of like a a close second as a modern day but he had to go to sculpture he did and it wasn't all you know it was different than yellen that was doing it out of coal forges and I mean, if you look at, but the thing is, when you when you look at, you know, perfect example, uh, Albert Paley, and and Samuel Yellen are two perfect examples of where do we go from here, because Samuel Yellen, he's an, he was an immigrant, Polish immigrant, I think he's Polish immigrant, right? And then he so, had yeah. a shop down in Philadelphia, kind of Philip PA, right? Philadelphia or Trent? Yeah, yeah, he was in Philly, right? Yeah. And he had, if you look at what Samuel Yellen did. He was considered one of the greatest blacksmiths of all time in design, and his work became synonymous with what was going on in terms of the design, architectural design, where you have Art Deco, Art Nouveau is, is, is like this confluence between 
you know, sharp lines, repeating patterns, and the biological shapes. Yeah, I mean, he was really organic about it, but the repeating patterns was kind of his like his thing. But you know? but I mean, it he his work and his design, you know, aesthetic complemented the 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 the, the popular fad. Not to say fad is not the wrong is the wrong word, but the popular design at the time. Like he right. fit in there on the money in terms of the pulse of 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 style design and fashion to the point where there isn't you know there isn't blacksmith now that would touch you know that uh that body of work now yeah not in this country anyways i mean i think like in russia and the uk there's there's still some big shops that do you know big gates and stuff like that still he had i mean Samuel Yellen is a fascinating guy, and my wife has got a a high school friend who's like a Samuel Yellen like expert that I I really want to. I think I would try to get him on your on the Blacksmith Pub at some. Yeah, that's cool. I'd like to talk to that. But guy. it's that's it's cool. fascinating because I mean, then you start to like look back. You know, Albert Paley. Albert Paley was such an important modern, you know, blacksmith. At the same time, he like he had to go towards art. He had to like make sculptural art. And it's because if you think about what's going on with the Center for Mental Arts, talking to Pat Quinn, I know we're going all over the place, but it's just the way it is. You know, the idea of what is what is the role of the modern day blacksmith, it almost seems as though it has to be this idea of, well, it's got to be some sort of art. You know, I think Albert Paley was forced into making sculpture, frankly. Huh. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you're talking about a guy who was, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I might get a call from Matt Harris at any moment. Yeah. <laughs> he right. listened to this. He's just like, oh, that's not right. But I mean, <laughs> Matt Harris is like, to me right now, the, on the path that Samuel Yellen, Albert Paley path. I would think so. He actually, Matt just posted on his Instagram right. story, a bunch of Samuel Yellen gates and places he was seeing his work. And Albert Paley sculpture. Yeah. So. And it's super cool. You know, what he's doing to me is like what Matt Harris is doing represents the idea of what's the role of the modern day blacksmith because he's doing these beautiful railings for he homes. He is doing big, really big stuff. And he's doing monster sculpture that can yeah. only be done out of steel. I know. I, I look at his, his work and I breathe into a paper bag. I'm like, holy cow, I think I'd, I'd have a mental breakdown. Um, Really, yeah, he's amazing. Such a cool guy. It was so much fun to hang out with him. Unbelievably great guy. And I'm going to have yeah. him back on because I, he and I got things to talk about. And what was interesting was if you look at some of the things that um, Matt was posting, he was posting these Albert Paley sculptures. And they were so, you know, steel sculpture in general mm-hmm. is so, I mean, you, you when you think about people like Leah Arapach, you think about people who are making steel sculpture, you th- think about... Uh, Joshua Prince. You think about people who are kind of like pushing the limits on steel. They are. I mean, Leah is really, she's changed everything, but I think she's changed the way people are looking at steel now. A hundred percent. She's amazing. A hundred percent. Her her thinking is so, is so new that it's, I think she's blowing the doors off of, you know, the industry in general. Leah's fascinating. We think about steel sculpture. We think about the blacksmith and we think about metalworking. 
when you're when you're talking about art and and we're gonna at the end don't let me i gotta talk to you about this this stuff i the generative art i gotta talk to you about generative art and, okay. and <laughs> we gotta talk about it because this drove me fucking nuts when you think about sculpture when you think about art everything is very dependent on your understanding of what you're doing and not to mention uh, and on knife talking on this I, I'm very like I've got the older I've gotten the more critical I've become of art and I'm, I'm 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 slightly hateful towards some people who say this is art or that's art or this is art and it makes me want to say all right well is it sculpture or is it not sculpture and then as, as soon as you a knife maker says I'm an artist I say okay what is it and it's a knife it's art and I'm like well is it sculpture and they say no nah, not really and I'm just like okay then it, maybe then it's not art and, and I've gotten to the point where I feel as though I feel as though the, the artist has to have a very firm understanding of what they're doing and being able to answer and talk about their work in a very responsible way. When I say responsible, I mean like, this is what I'm trying to do. These are the materials I'm trying to use. These are the techniques I'm trying to do. This is what I'm trying to get across to the viewer. This is the reason this is the, this, I'm doing it because of this. This is my direction. This is my uh, inclination. I feel like being able to say, well, it's up to the up to the viewer isn't good enough for me. So when I think about Albert Paley and I think about the stuff that Matt Harris is doing, it's very steel. Imp, the, imp, the importance of it being steel is very apparent. Same thing with Pat Quinn. That you look at his work, the techniques that he's doing and the stuff that he's doing, they're using traditional forging techniques that cannot be repeated by whatever. You know, uh, let's just say bronze casting or whatever. And and it, and I feel as though that that is the the linchpin with Albert Paley. I think that's the linchpin with uh, a lot of these current seal Matt Harris. And then when I think about Leah Arapach, I think about the fact that she's almost saying to the viewer, "Well, this could be you know." I I, I hear friends of mine saying, "Is she casting those? Are those all cast know, bronze? Right? They're so intricately done." That it's like, is does it is it important that it's steel? Is it you know? And it's, it's almost like she's making this interesting, you know, development and dive into the materials that she's using and the techniques that she's doing to almost say to you, well, you don't know what this could be, you know. And no, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, it'd be cool to see her work on like a really large scale. <sighs> it's only yeah. a matter of time. It I mean, is, yeah. it's only a matter of time. I mean, I think that when you look at work. You're looking at art and sculpture and, and, you know, blacksmithing is very interesting because like, especially nowadays in, in, in the knife making world, there's this idea of we, we still don't have some knife makers don't have the telltale signs that their work is forged or not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like with blacksmithing in general, you, you're a blacksmith, you make stuff and let's just say you're forging, let's just say a pair of tongs. What would be the telltale signs that they were forged? What would be the telltale? Yeah, like what versus, would you, versus what? If you were, if you were like, if you were just like a regular person, somebody just who didn't know anything about blacksmithing, what would be the telltale characteristics that the tongs that you made? Well, were I mean, the texture, the texture, I would think, right, would be obviously. It's, um, I mean, that forged metal, and especially like, um, you know, steel that comes out of a coal forge versus a gas forge, um it's it's really adds a lot of cool texture to it right um 
Yeah, I think that would be the, the obvious thing. That would be yeah. the obvious thing. Maybe you'd think about the swelling of where the hole was when you, you know, when you make the hole for the rivet, maybe. Yeah, I don't know if people would think that hard on it, though. If you don't know, you wouldn't know that, you wouldn't understand the concept of a drifted hole. But you would see stretching. Like, you, you a lot of I times. I suppose, but they might just think it's made that way. Of like, course. I mean, I'm, yeah. you don't, I mean, I'm just using this as a characteristic. Right. So if you just took a pair of tongs, and before you riveted them together, you mm-hmm. ground everything off. You ground all the texture off. Or you, and then you kind of like, you made everything angular and you kind of like, you know, you cleaned everything up and you filed everything. So you, there were no like telltale signs that it was forged. Then all of a sudden you just like, you're not real. I mean, you're just like making these beautiful, like here's a good example is, is uh, Peter Ross makes these amazing pliers. There are a lot of pliers that are not, they look like they're not forged. Like the needle nose. Right. Yeah. Those are absolutely unbelievable. And then you start to look at how we see ourselves as blacksmiths and knife makers and there are people who ask me you know people who ask is this forged or not and there's this idea that you know we're bringing along this technique of blacksmithing and we're creating something that people could recognize as oh well he forged that and well how why do you think he forged it well you know this is an integral bolster you can see that the bolster is big and it's, it would be a very expensive to just cut the whole thing up and, you know, carve it from a giant block. And, you know, or you see the forge scale on here or you see where Nick Rossi put his touch mark. You see he's got it high up on the spine and then it looks like when he hit right. the when he hit his touch mark, it like it like pooched out like the top of the spine to to make it raised. And it that's the telltale sign. of the, And I feel as though that like with blacksmithing and sculpture, I think it's very critical to make sure that those uh at the evidence the yeah, evidence yeah i mean i think you have to you have to show your work well i mean you look at hammer making now you know hammers i mean i see a lot you know th- there are hammers that are like you know once they're forged there they look like they came out of a you know machine shop right. you know yeah but you know the the the, the mo- one of the most interesting things about hammer making now is when i look at your hammers when i look at john's john ariani and cliff's hammers when i look at jake Farum's hammers uh even riley riley uh Fit, fitzpatrick riley mm-hmm. riley fitzpatrick you or or, or ben Snur. you see that they leave these or royalty forge or all these you know great hammer makers i mean i i'm mean, i can't name them all but yeah I mean, yeah no there's a there's a bunch but they're all yeah they're all very different they're different but at the same time they're leaving the, the residue of what the process is yeah there aren't many i mean maybe with um well, riley there who's he's filing stuff down but i that, i think that's like that's the old way you would do it is you would you would file your work but I mean, if you, um, but if you look at hammer making, you know, if you go to a Home Depot and buy a hammer, there's evidence that they were the, the that hammers were forged, right? You know, cross peen hammer. I mean, uh, uh, a uh, a ball peen hammer. You can get a ball peen hammer anywhere, and because the cheeks are raised on the top and the bottom of the hammer, that's evidence that the goddamn thing was forged. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It used to be that um, the S-wing there, tool maker, um, right. that makes the hammers and stuff. They used to have like a long time ago, like 2015. They had an Instagram account, and they used to show all the forging with the big old eerie drop hammers, like into those dies and knocking those, like you know, the little hatchets and the um, ball and peens and 
you know, the different products they made out. It, it was really fascinating to watch. All that stuff. I had a, I had a, a local friend of mine who uh, found when they were doing some renovation, they found some old drops from a drop forged cutlery company. And it was a it was as if they took a piece of steel and put it in a in a drop press and then it smushed it into the uh the shape of the you know steak knife or whatever and then all the excess was still attached that you would just kind of grind off right and it was this beautiful object that I was like I was like I don't want to give it I made a stand for it and I was just like I kind of don't want to even give it back because it was so beautiful but it was the evidence of the manufacturing sure. Yeah. When I, when I think back to Jordan and Jason and uh, Nick, one of the things I can't help think about is when I think of all three of them. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There's this reverence towards knife making is interesting because there's this always going to be this reverence towards the past. And some people make an effort to capture the past. Like Jordan Lamote is really interesting because if you look at all of his work and you look at his history, you know, now the last nine months being in, in India, studying Kaftgari, which is this raised, uh, this beautiful rate. It's like overlayment of, of gold and material you start to realize that he's he's like taking these old techniques and really you know figuring out a way to bring them to the bring them to the forefront yeah. of of he he will be really interesting to watch being the younger one of the guys you talk to um and going there and studying that i mean jordan lives actually pretty close to me he came over i don't know i think before covid with cliff dufton and stuff and we made draw knives yeah, I remember down. seeing the, the. I mean, you know, talk about a murderer's row. The three of you. Yeah, like... yeah, that was it, Keith Mitchell too. He came down, and um, that was that was a super fun day. And I still haven't used that draw knife, but um, he's a he's an interesting guy. And I think um, his whole family, I think, uh, so artsy and uh, creative people that um, you know, I think he could go sideways with this whole thing and and really be inventive with what he creates you know he's like a goddamn genius but the crazy part is if you've listened to the first episode i had on him he had like a brain tumor that was removed yeah. over his ear so right. like he's like 
superhuman in general. His intellect, his, his wording is just, he's a fascinating guy. And he had part of his brain scooped out. So it's just yes, like, what's your yeah. problem? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you, Jesse, but it's just like, what's my fucking, what's our problem? I you got know? a lot of problems. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, fucking guy, yeah. I mean, can you imagine if they didn't scoop half his brain out? I mean, he'd be like, you know, he'd be like the, I mean, I, I, I find, I find his intention also as a modern day bladesmith to be fascinating and the idea of he is trying to be he's very reverential towards the history of Kafgari and the, the the techniques of 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 that they did in India and everything like that and and I think that that's I think that that's almost an extraordinarily important part of this idea of what's our role and it's it's like to kind of it's to it's to be the telephone line or eh, telephone line is not the right way. It's we're we're like, you know, when there's back in the day when there was a fire, you'd see a line of people and then there would be buckets and they would have this chain. They one you give one bucket to the next guy and the next guy gives the bucket. And at the end of the day, the right. bucket of water goes on the fire. Well, I feel as though that the Kafgari is that bucket of water and he's just handing it over to the next person. And the next person might be a generation. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because we have had this, I still refer to it as this, you know, um, I feel like it's like this generational amnesia in regards to what blacksmithing and metalworking is. Because well, I don't, I think like, you know, I mean, all like all those three different people you had on are, are all coming at it from a different direction too. Um, 100%. I mean, I, I mean, with Nick, I mean, obviously he's, you know, a professional teacher and, um, uh, he's probably the one that overthinks everything the most, you know, cause he's got to explain, you know, how to make and forge things to somebody else. Um, but yeah, I just, it's pretty fascinating. Actually his, um, delinquent knife making class sounded like super cool. I was like, I've never really wanted to make a knife, but if I did, I would take that class. Dude, I <laughs> got so into the, to the point where, I re-listened back to that uh, Nick Rossi episode, and and if you're if you're listening to this for the first time, you're thinking, "What is he talking about?" Nick Nick is an incredible knife maker, incredible teacher, really one of the most important teachers right now, like in terms of like, you know, popular a popularized knife making teacher who's well regarded. He's you know, there's I don't think there's anybody who's just who, who's like yeah, Nick Rossi doesn't know what he's talking about. He's he's blanket statement the i i tell you i i referred to him i made some i made some uh, posts when i had him on once and i said arguably one of the world's best um teachers yeah oh, people sure. got mad at me for saying arguably like people were like arguably what do you mean arguably i mean like from guys from australia guys from all over the world are just like arguably who, who's arguing i'm like i didn't mean it i was just a figure i was just you know using some fucking vernacular you know right he's he's figured out a way to kind of like become such an important part of the teaching community and that idea of bringing it past. But the idea of the delinquent knife class, I want to oh, make it's a, brilliant. I'm going to do a friction folder butterfly knife. Oh, like, I want to make that stupid. Um, no, it's not stupid. I've got a couple the survival of knife. No, the, uh, the war club, um, that was used in, uh, last of the Mohegans. Oh yeah. You do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like I've got a couple of those old ones. It's like a gun stock with like a, it's like a forged arrowhead type thing that you and like embed in the wood. You should talk, you should look at James Fleming. That's Wasteland Forge. 
Wasteland for James Fleming does those. And we, nice. I had him on this podcast and we were talking about it. And so the idea by, by, by those war clubs were that they were like, they were, they found, I guess, old guns and they were just kind of converting yeah. them into like clubs. Yeah. I have like a really old one um, that my dad found somewhere. But it's, it's all very, I mean, it's all very interesting. And, and when you look at, I mean, here's the thing, James Fleming's in Idaho, you know, or Iowa, he's in Iowa. I don't know. I, I mean, I would never know about him or what he's doing if it wasn't for social media. Would never. I know that's a, it, that's the amazing thing. I mean, it, um, that's the greatest part about Instagram when I first got on, cause I was like able to go and meet other people and um, take classes. So it was like, there's places you can take a blacksmithing class. Like what the heck? Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's all of a sudden you start to see it. You start to see, I mean, I, I find everything to be interesting. I find, I find it interesting that like we've created this people starting to see blacks, you know, 10 mm. years ago, they started seeing them and I want to do it. And now that there's a need and there are people who are trying to, I don't want to, I think I'm saying capitalize, but I'm saying it with, with peace and love on the things that people in doing this need. You know, there are companies that are making grinders. Brian House is making, has got a do-it-yourself grinder class. Now, grinder grinder kit, he's making forges and ribbon burners. Yeah, he makes some awesome stuff. And, and you know, uh, uh, the Broadbeck guys started out on Men on Forge and Fire, and then they're, you know, they're making, you know, they're making Broadbeck Ironworks grinders. And you're starting to see, you're, create, you're seeing the demand on social media, and then you're trying to say, well, how can I help the people in this community? And that's part of this idea of this kind of golden age. I mean, Nick and I last week called it a golden age. It's because it's a golden age. It is. And the interesting thing about now versus like even, I don't know, five years ago is like it's, I feel like it's being, like people would get into blacksmithing or bladesmithing and kind of jump in with both feet. And some people would get out or some people it would stick. I think people now are taking it like in like bites. Like they're, they're, they're taking that class. And then they're going going home and like maybe buying a gas forge or a couple little things, and then um, you know it's not it's not the end all be all. It's not like where they're headed. They just want like another like medium like in their garage. Like, but do you think you think a hundred years ago, a guy had a job, and he would think to himself, "I need fulfillment. What's going to give think, me?" Yes, fulfillment? I do because it's like I've got one of I've got like. Um, an old like uh it's like an indian head buck knife and it's um it was definitely like something like that world war ii generation when those guys came home from the war and they were um tinkering around and making stuff there's a lot of that like folk art that's um i think people did that they, they didn't do it on the scale that we're doing it now um but i you know i definitely think people did i mean trying to think of examples well, in my own family but um when i think of like personal fulfillment you know the idea of fulfillment mm -hmm. you know let's just let's just say what's not fulfillment maybe you t you get a job and you get a career and i'm talking not current now now nowadays i'm talking about like back in the day 100 years ago 200 years ago you made it you took a job on you took a career on you took a pathway on to help feed your family and to further your, you know, your family, you further your family, maybe you make a little bit more. You did. I, th I think the thinking was like, the thinking now is more like, uh, trying to think of the right word, like secular, like you, we think more about ourselves and less, 
less like a pack. Right. You know, and taking care of your family. And um, so there is that. I think that's, it's very American, you know? But if you think about things that were fulfilling, part of me was like, I was, I was walking the dogs and I was thinking about like, you know, the idea of like these kind of hobbies are fulfilling to you because you, you have a physical manifestation of something that you've accomplished, you know? And I started to think about, well, what would be some examples of back in the day that might have been fulfilling that might not necessarily had to be fulfilling? And I thought well, about... Well, I, I think people did it for emotional relief, too. You think... Well, that's fulfilling. Back from, yeah. So, like, hunting. I think that hunting was one of those things. Hunting and fishing became one of those things that were, number one, it was this cross-section between something that you had to do for money or for food or to feed your family, but also you had a sense of accomplishment, right? So like yeah, guys who were, I mean, I don't, I have no hunting experience whatsoever. I've talked to a pile of hunters. I don't, I don't, I've yeah. never, I'm not really, that's not really for me, but I understand the exhilaration of, I can understand the exhilaration of planning a trip out and trying to find this mm. animal and then tracking the animal and then getting it and then bringing it back. And then, you know, the, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, we, I took my, um, stepdaughter out hunting uh, when she was 13 and she we had you know i see i sit forever and never see a deer and of course a deer walks up and i'm like your decision whether you want to shoot it or not and um she dropped this doe we had a doe tag for a youth weekend and um you know once you pull that trigger the you know the romance of the hunt is over and um it was tough for her to watch the animal die but um once it did die and we gutted it out and um you know, brought it back and, um, my, uh, stepfather had cut it up for us and, you know, that fed us like for six months. Yeah. You know, and it like, so she really valued like how much like food you got out of that animal and that, um, you know, it may be a more humane way to, to like harvest livestock than, or harvest uh, an animal than having like livestock going into a slaughterhouse. I believe that's a hundred percent true. Yeah. But I, I would imagine that for a person that fulfillment of it's a, it's a, it's gotta be an emotional fulfillment. Same thing with fishing. Like mm-hmm. I've thought about like these, like I'm tying flies. If you tie flies, I don't know if you've ever tied flies before. I tied flies when I was in, when I was a kid and we explained that the, you put the hook in the vise and then you have the thread right. and you have the different feathers and then what you're doing is you're trying to mimic these other bugs and then the, what the if you do the fly right, you're going to attract the fish and then the fish bites and then you, all of a sudden you've made something and you have an instant result. I can imagine that back in the day that that was incredible. I mean, they made that goddamn movie, A River Runs Through It, and it was oh, all about right, yeah. the fulfillment of getting the trout and bringing it to your family and to, you know, like the you against nature, man against nature. And, and I feel as though that that was like, I can understand the crossover between um, this idea of like, all right, this is this is makes me feel like whatever, a man or a woman, or makes me feel important or makes me feel valued. And then nowadays, you still have that, and you still obviously you look at you know Montana Knife Company. I mean Josh Josh Smith is is like 
capital like when I say capitalize, I'm not saying it like I'm not saying it with intention. I'm just saying that like he is like he knows there are people out there who just like I love to hunt and this is the reason why and this is I want to make products to make your hunt better and creating this whole thing and it's great. With the blacksmithing and the bladesmithing, you're still seeing that fulfillment, but the, I don't think that they had that fulfillment with like sure. we're gonna make I'm gonna you know, after my job as whatever, you know, a hundred years ago, I'm gonna go in the garage and I'm gonna make you know, things to make me feel better about myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think they I, did? I think they did in spurts, but maybe they didn't have like the, um, I don't think they had the, not the time, but maybe the, the money. Um, money, yeah, money would be a thing. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah. if you don't have a lot of money, I mean, you're not going to be investing. Well, you know, no, the, I mean, it's it's expensive to like it, the time's expensive, and then to invest in something that you're not making money out of is, is you know an expense um, on your family that I'm sure they couldn't you know afford. So that must be a new this idea of the hustle, this idea of like. I'm going to stay up late. I'm going to knock some knives out. I'm going to try to sell them online. You're, you know, I have a regular job. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a, you know, fictitious person who probably exists. I mean, I have a regular job, but I've learned how to make knives. I'm going to knock some out on my off time when everyone's asleep. And then I'm going to try to sell them. That's a relatively, might, maybe it's a new idea in the past. Maybe, years. I mean, you, maybe like somebody who did paintings or crafts or, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of people that, you know, the guys making picnic tables in their backyards and selling them on the front lawn, right. you know, there's, there's always like people that are creative that just like have like um, a need to make stuff and make a few bucks on it. Well, one of the things I wanted to kind of bring up, and this is something I've been kind of talking about for a while, but it made me think about uh, Jason Knight, made me think of uh, Nick Rossi and just Jason Knight, especially if you look at how art was back in the day, original art where there was they were commissioning uh, artists to do the insides of chapels or they were commissioning right. artists to do or portrait portraiture of you know nobility or kings and stuff like that there was this level of it being a craft to the point where it really wasn't about the artist you know it was about the product and the, you know uh, still lives were composed this very specific way these family portraits were uh, composed a certain way. There were certain things that represented certain things. A fruit meant something, or a different animal right. meant something. And it was more along the lines of it really wasn't about the artist as much as it was about the art and the person it was painted about. Right. right? They were almost like, and to the point where when we went to, uh, we went to uh, Amsterdam, we visited the uh, Rembrandt house, Rembrandt house. Mm -hmm. And what we were learning was what the Rembrandt was. He had this big house, and then he was taking on uh, he was taking on assistants. Oh no, he was taking on students. So if you were like no, you know, if you had a kid, you would have to send the kid to art schools, and you'd have to have a certain degree of training before uh, Rembrandt would agree to have this kid. And then the kid would, after you know, being vetted as being someone who was worth a damn, they would go to Rembrandt. Rembrandt would teach you how to paint like him. Really? And he would, huh. what he would do is he would make you paint his paintings. And then that was it. It wasn't creativity. It was basically figuring out how to make a painting that looked like Rembrandt had done it. 
Right. And it was like, it was like, I mean, it was like a, kind of be honest with you, it was like a pimp situation. So he started to have, like, he would make people, he would have these students making work and then they would sell the work and then he would also get a piece of the action. Like, you know, he would basically get a big piece of the action of everything these people painted. Well, it's no different than like a, you know, a blacksmith now that you, you bring a kid into the shop and this is like the product that I'm selling. And then you make it exactly the way I make it. And then I'm going to sell it as mine, you know? Exactly. And, and yeah. he was, he was basically creating these, like, he was creating like a sweatshop. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, is if you look through history and then all of a sudden there's this almost like this point where obviously now we're talking about like, you know, artists who are of, of, uh, who are famous that we know about, right? Mm-hmm. You start to see that it became, it becomes less about the art and more about the person itself, the artist. Like this guy's famous, you know, Michelangelo was famous for David and he became renowned for the beautiful work that he did. And all of a sudden you start to see these faces of, you know, these artists. And then all of a sudden you almost, I almost, and I, you know, look, this could be, I could be totally off base. I could be totally off base, but then all of a sudden you start to, it's not, it's it's less about the work and more about the artist. And when I think about knife making now, you look at a kukri, you look at a kukri, that Gurkha knife, you could look at the traditional, I've seen people make these Gurkha knives. My dad had a Gurkha knife brought back from World War II, curved knife, but it's not the curve that you think. It's the curve the spine's going. It's like a sickle almost. Right. The traditional kukris look like traditional kukris, and there's not a dude that I don't know of who know, who's known for the kukri. Jason Knight's taken that design, and he's kind of made it almost like his own. It's about him and his style of kukris. And when you look at artists, one of the artists that, always comes to mind to me is Alexander Calder. Alexander Calder created the concept of the mobile. The mobile, the the name, everything about it. If you have a mobile over your child's crib and they call it a mobile, Alexander Mm -hmm. Calder not only created that concept, but he created the name. He created the whole idea of what the mobile is. And it's like his idea has almost separated itself out from who he is in general. And it, all of a sudden, I start to look at knife makers and blacksmiths, and it's and it's part of art in, in art right now, where art is it's more about the artist than it is about the work itself. Right. I don't know, man. It's the fuck different. Different generation. But I mean, I got I got a bone to pick with you. Okay, about go your, ahead. Your nasty comments about people from Vermont. Oh yeah! What, I, I, what the heck was that about? All right, so, <laughs> P, number one, I do it to see if you're listening. Yeah, no, I did. I did. I was like, "What the heck?" I and take. I love. Jordan said something about you have to be seven generations or whatever. I want to say that I have eight generations back. My grand, eight generations back, grandparents lived on the same street I do. So let's talk about gen, the, your generation. Wait, I know. You no, know, number one, it's hardcore. I'll tell you what I think about. You're one of my close friends, obviously. I'm shooting shots at people that I like. You know, I'm, not, I'm not just like, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I happen to know that like a lot of people in, in Vermont and well, let's just say New England. Let's just say New England. Yeah. You could almost throw all New England. I feel as after. though New England has a little bit more, has a little bit more of an edge than say people sub, south of New England. Right. I, I felt like it. I felt like it. Like watching the news this morning, and they said 
you know, that uh, Chinese spy balloon or whatever was finally shot down on the East Coast. I was like, it takes the balloon to get to Bunker Hill before we take it out of the sky. And I was like, but it went across all the cowboy area and nobody shot at it. <laughs> I, I, mean, I thought it was in the, well, they didn't shoot it down in, uh, in uh, Montana. The stupid. No, thing. they shot it over North Carolina. I think the military did. What a, this is a, I mean, you know what the funny thing about this whole Chinese blimp is? Why do they need it? They got TikTok. I don't know. They know everything about yeah, us. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, they got I Chinese know. got TikTok. They know everything that we they need to know about us. They don't need to know anything else. They got it no. all. So stupid. So funny. But, but um, no, I get to get back to the point that uh, no, I mean, like like I was saying, my eight generations back, grandparents, uh, Brotherton Seward, um, his uh, his wife was Sarah Cotton. She was actually from. Uh, Massachusetts um, but his uh, um, Brotherton died um, at uh, Fort Ticonderoga in 1776 wow yeah pretty cool he walked he was you know walked from Massachusetts then um, all the way up and around and he got sick at the fort during the war when it when I think about a lot of the stuff that you you're very very history oriented especially in your family yeah in my area you no, know, but in like your I, family. I mean, you know way more. You know way more about the genealogy of your family than most people do of their own. Families. I do. I mean, I feel like I have relationships with those people. I've studied them so much, and you know, like really researched them and gone to the, you know, where the old house was or where, um, you know, they might have worked. Um, you know, the cemeteries. Um, you know, found like the kids that died while they were still alive. You know, and found. Um, yeah, I've, I've almost broke down into tears a couple of times in like town halls when you used to be able to go back in and search records like uh, by hand, like, and you just find, you know, families that, you know, got hit with one sickness and, you know, they got 10 kids and, you know, two days later they got, they only have, you know, two alive. Um, it's just, it's amazing. Um, I think you learn a lot about, you know, yourself. You learn about a little bit about, um, just you know your dna and um what what you came from see you know what's interesting is i i there's there were when my dad died there was a lot of questions he had he had been married four times my mother was the third wife right we don't know anything about the first wife yeah see that's the stuff like you gotta hunt those stories we don't even know i mean he kept her from all of us and the one person who who knew was a friend of his that I was trying to like slowly figure out. I wanted to know. I wanted to know about my dad's. There was a section of my life that my my father's life that I never knew about that I wanted to, and he refused to tell me. My dad just wanted to. He was one of those guys. He came. Like I said, he's fifty years older than me. He came from. A, he actually probably should have been. He would have been my grandfather's generation. You know, as opposed to my father's. And there were a lot of things that there was just no, we're not telling you. And that's just the way it is. Don't ask. Right. And there was, when my dad died, he had a friend from World War II that we were close with. However, not close enough that he would kind of give us any of the information. So that friend who we thought was really like the last chance of, you know, who this person is. Right. He died. And it, it was it felt like a door was closed on this information. Now, I could go your route and just like be doggedly 
interested and <clears throat> I'm sure that there are records that I could find. I don't even, I know that I barely know that this man's first, this woman's first name, you know? So, uh, it, it, there's a lot of stuff that I think that would be interesting, but I'm also afraid. I'm also afraid. See, this, this is the thing is like a lot of looking through a lot of this stuff. I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. Well, you know, it's tough to search stuff that's close. It's easy, like the stuff when you're like emotionally attached to somebody that you're looking at, um, I think that stops a lot of people, and especially if you have like a rocky childhood in any way, or there's a ne negative aspect to somebody. I mean, my mother's um, father um, drank himself to death at, he was 47, I think, when he died. Um, really heavy drinker, never never amounted to much. He sold um, uh, all the slate off the roof, you know, so wow. he could go drinking. and. Um, He's not a great guy, but his his uh, his parents were good people. They're all in. They all came in from South Boston during the potato famine. Actually, we were just at the um, cathedral in South Boston, the Catholic Church there, and you know, looking at their names and stuff in the um, stonework outside was really cool to see. Do you of all the all the families that came in then? Do you feel that because of their generations removed from these people, it's a little bit easier to? Kind of well, stomach? for me, for me, it's tough with my mother to reach, you know, with him, um, obviously her, you know, somewhat abandoned by an alcoholic father that died. And then, um, for, but for me, I never knew him. I have no emotional right. connection, attachment to him at all. Um, so I find, I find his story fascinating. Um, but it, you jump over into the next generation and get by him and then you know, and, and start researching because the, like the, the Irish stuff in Boston is crazy. Like all the stuff that happened in like, um, you know, the 1850s and these whole families just moved over together. Like, you know, um, it, it, I think you, you have to make that jump. You have to find the story because once you find the stories, it all of a sudden it, it brings these names and dates alive that uh, wouldn't have been otherwise. This you you've you've you speaking of getting something out of someone I, there's a story that I wasn't going to tell on this story, on this podcast just because I felt like eh, I don't even really it's not really at the at the the, the point however I'm going to tell you this story because I think it's it's yeah you know, it's an interesting story but it's like part of my life that's kind of something right. relatively new that I haven't really shared but at the same time I'm like ah if I'm going to tell someone I'm going to tell Jesse so my mother, who is doing okay, she's doing okay. She's, you know, we've gotten her out of, you know, into a, a place that's kind of taking better care of her. And mm -hmm. it's been like a kind of a real rough couple of number of years. Um, yeah, with COVID alone. Well, COVID, I, I see, I've, you know, I was delivering her groceries and, you know, she was, <clears throat> you know, we had her, we moved her a couple of times and now we're, she's at a place where she's safe and everything's like that. So number uh, so a long time ago before I was born, she had a child that she gave up for adoption that I didn't huh. know about. And I didn't know about until I was in college. <clears throat> and she was, you know, I give my mother a lot of, um, I give her a lot of love and respect for trying to deal with it in a positive manner. You know, she was at a time where she was, she was, uh, who knows, be honest with you. And it was a decision that she had made and uh, it was a hard decision that she'd made. And, and it was a decision that she made that she, she sat with for the rest of her life, really with the rest of her life. To, yeah, you know, of course. Right. 
So she told me that she had given this child up for adoption when I was in college. And my initial response was, this must have been a hard burden for you, thinking that she thought I was going to be mad. And I was just like, how can I be mad? This has nothing to do with me. It was really like this... It was this, I mean, I've, I, the first thing I said is, I'm sorry that you've been, you've been holding this fear and guilt your whole life. Like, yeah, how can I be mad at like, How can I be mad about you something that is nothing? I can't imagine carrying that. Well, but I mean, but Matt, she thought that I was going to be mad that, like, she had another child or something. Right. Who knows? And I, you know, I immediately was, I felt terrible for her that she was going through, you know, my life thinking that at some point, you know, I would never know. So... She got to a certain age. This was probably, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago. She got to an age where she reached out. And she said, I had made the decision that I want to try to reach out to my daughter, you know, and, and say that if you want to reach out to me, you know, right. feel free. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want you to know that. And she wrote a note to the adoption agency and it was, I, I, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was along the lines of, I just want you to know that I love you. And then I did this because I wanted you to have a life that I couldn't give you. And whatever reasons she had, and she just wanted to know that she just wanted to put it out there, give it to the adoption company and say, you know, if this person ever reaches in, I want her to find something that, you know, was a loving note that, you know, it can't, obviously it can't explain why you did everything, you know, but at the same time, it was a, it was a thoughtful, loving note. So then a couple you know, like a couple years later, the adoption, and you know how they do it with these adoption agencies. You can't just like you know, you can't no, send you an can. email address. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> they, they they make it like very difficult because obviously this is a very traumatic thing for most people. So she got a message back saying that uh, her daughter had reached out and basically said that I'm I'm happy and healthy and I have a family and I'm not ready to meet you at this point. But you know, it was very much along the lines of respectful and like yeah, that's nice, right? So I'd say, uh, what is it, three years ago, right before COVID, like a year before COVID, yeah. year or two before COVID, I get a message from my mother calls me up. She goes, Jeff, and this is when she could call me on the phone. Like she's now in a position now where she's, she ain't calling anybody. She's, she's bedridden. She is being taken care for. She has, you know, dementia that's like, you know, everything else and her health and everything like that. She's doing okay, but not, this isn't the person that, you know, raised me right, right. now. She's in a tough spot. However, we're giving her everything she got. So this is, you know, three, three and a half, maybe four, five, say four years. Let's say, let's say four years ago. Four years ago, I got a call. My mother, she says, um, my daughter reached out. And I said, what? I said, huh. I talked to my daughter. And um, I gave her your phone number. I said, what? What are you talking about? What is this? <laughs> like, all of a sudden, I'm just like, wait, what is that? I'm in the shop. I'm trying to, like, get my shit together. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And it was this, she's like, my mother was on cloud nine. She had reached out. The woman, um, my sister, my new sister reached out and she's fantastic. And she reached out to my mother and she, you know, I guess what happened was her, her, her adopted parents had passed away and she just made the decision that I want to meet my, I want to know my, this family that I never knew. Right. So all of a sudden I'm just like, so my mother is like, yeah, at this point, she's very, she's a very impulsive person. She decides, well, I'm just gonna like give her your number, and you know, all of a sudden, I'm just like, you know, fuck you. A part of you is just like, you know, mom, <laughs> fuck you. This now, all of a sudden, I was so fucking happy for you, and I was so like, 
you know, I was so like, don't be, I'm not mad at you. Why would I be mad at you? And I'm like, now I'm fucking mad at you. Why are you putting me in this position? All of a sudden, I, this is my my situation too. Turns out that my, uh, this, my sister is a chef in, wow. in Cincinnati. A fucking, see, that stuff's in your DNA. A fucking chef in yeah, Cincinnati. Yeah, it's in your DNA. And I sent her a message, and this was right after the, uh, funny enough, this was right after the Epicurious video I did came out, and she watched that, and she's like, all of a sudden, she's like, I fucking watch, you know, I watched that before I met you, and I'm like, there was this connection, and then she's been fantastic, and she came up to visit us, and I'll tell you, want to talk about, you know, you know, this is like, we're talking about like, you're meeting your generations and meeting your family. My mother says, she's going to come to visit, and I want you to pick her up at the airport. And I'm like, that must have been the, that was the hardest ride I've ever had to do. Now, now, now I'm in my f- mid forties. Once you picked her up or the ride, the to ride it? to picking her up. Yeah. Because who is this person? What is she doing? What is she like? Is, are we going to have a connection? Do we have to have mm-hmm. a relationship? And, and it was like the scariest moment. And, and when she got off the plane, she looks just like my mom. And I picked wow. her up and we had a great time and she's funny and she was nervous and we were making jokes and we got along really, really good. And it was this really lucky and thoughtful and creative. And she's, she's fabulous. And we are in good, we're in it. We, I've, it's like, imagine you're 45 and then you all of a sudden you meet your sister for the first time. Mm-hmm. We took her around, we visited, she sends us messages, she sends us letters, she sends us care packages, we send her back, I text with her, I've been talking with her all the whole way through with what's going on with my mother and stuff like that. But it was this, it was as if, I mean, it was a crazy situation. And it was the crazy situation, it, and it's not, I'm not mad about it, I'm happy about it. This is a person that's going to be in my life for the rest of my life. You know. Yeah, that's awesome. So it turned into a But it was experience. this crazy spot where all of a sudden history is like hitting you in the face with not I mean, none of this is negative. This is all positive. We got lucky. We got real lucky and yeah. she's had a wonderful life. She's in uh, down in Cincinnati. She's probably upset about the, the Bengals losing, but fine. She'll be all right. She'll you live a little I've sent her knives. She uses my knives. She's a you know, she teaches cooking and she's a professional chef. She's an awesome chef. And it's this like bizarre situation. I make chef knives. This person is in my DNA as a chef. And it's this crazy part of history that it's like, it just came out of nowhere. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great story. I mean, can you imagine? It reminds me of um, my grandmother, like her, she never knew her father uh, on my dad's side. And um, she, um, uh, I think I've talked about this a little bit before, but not this part of it. Um, I actually found, while she was still alive, I found that she had a half-sister, like, alive in New York State. And um, I almost went to her with that information, but my dad was like, no, it's like water under the bridge. Like, leave it alone at this point, because she never really knew who. She always thought her father was somebody different. She thought it was her stepfather. That's what her mother said. This, that's your dad and her. Um, she never knew otherwise until she was, I think, in her 70s and found out who her real father was. But it's, um, don't you think this is all, I mean, it's the reality of it all is so fascinating. And you're kind absolutely. of like, and you're also, you're all, it's also, it's out of your control. Like the history of your family 
in the history it's totally under control yeah and it's like yeah. it's how you deal with these you know you're like a i see pardon me i burped i i feel like it's like you're you're like a cork in the water and like these things just happen to you and it's like how you deal with them is fascinating and it makes me kind of think that the idea of what our role is in modern day as a modern day blacksmith or modern day metal worker is to think about the past and like figure out a way are we going to translate what we learn to other people are we going to be a positive a positive role in this situation are we going to help foster it are we going to help inspire people are we going to is this is this that is our role right now i think like i mean us too in general just being you know teachers like at center for metal arts and like you know and teaching private classes here and there um i think like one of our like you and i's personally like our main role uh you know is just sharing that information um you know and exciting you know making people excited about the the art one of the things i think that you and i are both in agreement on and i mean we're only a month apart p.s you know, happens, yeah, you, know, know. you and I are going to have to talk next year when we both uh, turn a certain Oh, age. I know you oh don't God. like talking about it. See, that's the interesting yeah. thing is you talk about generations, <laughs> but you don't like to talk about yourself. But oh. um, what I think is interesting about your direction, my direction, I think it's unconsciously the same, is I don't want – I want to be a door kicker. I want to be the guy that does the introductory classes. I want to be the guy that helps yeah, you get too. fired up to do it. I don't need to be the yeah. best. But I want to no. I want to like the... I want to get you fired up to like get into something different. You know what I mean? Like that to me exactly. is like when the classes I get oppor the opportunities to teach. And now I'm only teaching two classes. I'm only teaching at um, Center for Metal Arts, and I'm only and at uh, Florentine Kitchen Knives in Barcelona. And, yeah, I saw that you just well. I signed I want to get people. I don't want to do these like intensive hairy classes. I want to do these classes that get you so fired up you want to take more. Exactly. And I feel like that's yeah. my role is to like let you dip your tip dip, let you dip dip your toe. <laughs> let you dip your toe and see what you can do and see that it's very attainable. So to me, like, you know, I don't think I'm ever gonna test to be uh journeyman smith or master bladesmith, even though I said I would. Yeah. Because I don't feel like the need to be the best. Like I feel like my, my I feel like, and I don't think about it very often, but I like the idea of like getting people involved. Mm -hmm. I think it's so cool that the bladesmiths have that group, you know, so that you can go through a structured, um, you know, education, I guess, um, you know, and are, you know, become certified in a way. Because with blacksmithing, it's like, I mean, even with welding, you have to be certified. With blacksmithing, it's like, you know, how do you become a blacksmith? Well, you get an Instagram account and buy an anvil. Right. You know, it's it's like there's no, uh, there's no like rules with it. Well, this has been, I mean, for the ABA, American Bladesmith Society, who, if you're listening to this and wondering what we're talking about, the American Bladesmith Society has a, a, a not, not rigorous isn't the right word, but I mean, they have a, a system in place where you can become an apprentice smith then you can mm -hmm. test after a certain amount of time. You can test to be a journeyman smith, and then you test to be a master smith. And basically what those designations mean is that you've fulfilled the requirements that they see fit in regards to being a bladesmith at the level that they're, you know, you're testing for. And it's great, and it's important. And I think that um, now that with Instagram and Forge and Fire, 
we're creating a new generation that might have not been there before. There might have been without the the you know public relations of all these things, there wouldn't have been as many people you know going to Blade Show and testing for Blade. I mean, this is this past year was the most people have tested for Journeyman Smith in in I don't, probably in all of all time. I mean, like fifty probably, people, yeah. fifty people, or sixty, or at one point it was gonna be eighty people. This is like this is the how the you know our generation is now fostering this new pursuit because it is a yeah. new it's a different and new pursuit it is i think i mean i do think lee morell um rosa banna is doing is trying to start a program that's similar to that um through abana but i'm not sure where they are with it um but it's it's a it's cool that they do it it's important and, um yeah I mean, Absolutely. this is how we this is how we keep these. I mean, our role as the as the modern day blacksmith or as the conduit to generations is to keep the bucking ball rolling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and how can we make it? You know, how can we make sure that this doesn't die off? You know. No, absolutely. Last thing I want to talk to you about, and then uh, I'll let your head spin. And you don't have to know anything about this. I just want to kind of put it out there. So. Uh, my friend Bree Pettis, who gave me the uh, his variation of the uh, Moon Hammer, he has a company called Bantam Tools, and he's also like a futurist, where he's very interested. He's been he's a fascinating guy. Started a desktop CNC company. He's become really a huge part of of uh, digital uh, transformation of digital stuff to physical stuff. That's all I'm gonna, that's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna have a monsoon. Cool. So he told me he invited me to this uh, art opening, and he made a gallery at his office, and it was all what's referred to as plotter art. Do you know what plotter art is? I feel like I do, but remind me. So a plotter, and I and I might get this all wrong. So there's the concept of digital art, and I bet back in the '80s they had these printers that were large format printers to to print big you know, images. Mm. And what plotter art was is computer artists or generative artists, they're called generative artists now, who have designed programs to make artwork. And then now you can program it and then the computer will, there'll be plot points and then the, the, there's the printer can put, you put, you know, ink pens in the, this giant plotter and then it prints out the drawing that, you design through computer programming so it's a lot of concentric lines it's a lot of like overlapping lines and some of them they're beautiful some of them you don't realize that they're done by you know by a computer and it is computer program it isn't just like you know getting on you know you know your apple draw and then you're using a stylist it's you're using algorithms and programming to create this work and then there have been so you think to yourself, okay, I'm thinking of in your mind you have this idea of what this digital art is. Well, apparently there have been digital artists using this these programs to create art since the 70s. Wow. So he has he has one of the largest collections of digital art from the 70s. So you can imagine if you call them nerds now, you imagine they were like probably like you know witches back in the 70s <laughs> with like these like fucking computers that they were developing and then they would figure out these programs and then they would try to figure out how to make this computer. I mean, I saw stuff that he had from the 70s of like the earliest days of computer art. 
So he had this big showing, and then he, there were these dealers there, and I was talking to a lot of them, and I was talking about these artists, talking to some of these artists, and they all, they had a plotter party. So he bought, he found all these 1980s plotters. He had like the biggest collection of like these vintage printers, basically. And then he yeah, pe he would invite all these compute these generative artists to come. These are young guys. And they would bring their files, and they would bring their computers, and then they would like make art, and then they would install it. So there was, I was talking to some of the artists, and they were the young guys. These young guys were big into NFTs. Like they started out. So I talked to this one guy, this one artist. He, called, he refers to himself as a generative artist. So I think, well, I'm, what the fuck does that mean? And and he said, well, you know. And then I was talking to Bree, and I was talking to a few other people, and I was he was saying, so generative art is you're creating a degree of AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and you're programming, and then that artificial intelligence and programming creates art, and then you can, it can be, you know, something that's never seen again, or, or it can be like an NFT where it has a digital signature that's never made again. So there are these young guys who during the pandemic started making, you know, they're computer programmers, no art background, and they started Yeah, I wondered about that. They didn't know like artistic well, like uh, schooling at all. Here's or... where we get into it because so okay. I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at it and I mean they're they're pretty, but when I'm talking to an artist, I'm fascinated by the artist themselves. So I'm talking this guy's, you know, programming and he's showing you how the plotter works and stuff like that. And I said, "Well, tell me about your work." You know, I'm looking for some like, well, you know, if you ask me to talk about my work, I can, you know, explain why I do these lures because da, 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 I do this and the, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in movement. I'm interested in repeating colors. And I, he says to me, he goes, and this is, I'm not, I'm saying this with respect. I'm not saying this like disrespectful and I'd like to be disrespectful, but I'm not. I'm saying this respect because the guy was really nice enough to talk to me. He says, well, I just kind of make stuff that I think is cool. And that's my immediate, like, you know that's not good enough answer for me, like immediately. And I was just like, I was tired. I was cold. I might've had a pop or two. And I was, I was like, well, what you, well, I said, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, do you have a, does your work have a direction? Do you have, what's your intentions? And he got like, he kind of like, you know, bristled a little bit. And he's just like, what do you mean? I was like, well, did you go to art school? Do you have any training? He goes, no, I'm a computer programmer. I just make things that are cool. And it was like, he immediately I said, well, you know, I, I'm interested in like, because to me, art is about, being an artist is about uh, having evolutions of your thought, you know, having like a body of work and you see where things come from. It's the generations of your creativity, honestly. It's the mm -hmm. idea of like, you know, you talk about the genealogy of your family. I, when you're a sculptor, for me, the most important ones are being able to see the genealogy of the thought process in the work. So this guy's just like, you know, I just fucking knock shit out. And he's making MFT, NFTs, and now he's making this digital art. And it's beautiful and stuff like that. But he got very – I asked him some really, like, you know, JV questions. Really, like, I mean, just like, say anything. You can say some bullshit. You can say anything. Right. He got – he was very – didn't like that I said it. Uh, faked he needed to make a phone call. I'm not kidding. <laughs> faked. I'm not kidding. This guy was, like, awkward. <laughs> He says, oh, I have to call my girlfriend and walked out of the room. I never saw him again. Oh, wow. And it was like, and I saw, I was, and respectfully, I mean, I, I believe that's the case. I, be, I mean, in my mind, I'm just like, I asked him some softball questions. You could say nothing, but he didn't like that I was almost questioning him. Right. And pretended to take a phone call and fucked the way off. 
So I was talking to Bree, and I was kind of I'm going to have him on. We're going to talk about generative art because I am kind of like I'm kind of against it, frankly, because I feel as though it's you know art is about the humanity. And when I think about blacksmithing, I think about bladesmithing. I think about like the imperfections of humanity. I think about the intentions. There's of, a lot. To, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said about humanity. And to me, art is about humanity. It's about the the humanity. The it's about the flaws that we you right. know, we try to do. It's it, it's, it's like uh, Samuel bringing back to Samuel Yellen. Like you'll look at his pattern, and it will have like four different scrolls in the same thing that are all, you know, in the larger pattern. But each one of those scrolls is different, even though they look they're so close. Right. But they're they're all handmade. They're different. They're different. That's the best part about blacksmithing. It's the scrolls aren't going to, even if you have like a jig, there's going to be some idiosyncrasies. That's the humanity. That's what Uri Hoffa used to say to me about like when I don't hit it and, you know, when we would forge things and there'd be some like, you know, lumps. He said, don't hit it anymore. That's the humanity. And so I'm talking to this guy and he, I gave him some easy ones and he fucked away off pretending he's going to call his girlfriend. And I was talking to Bree about it. <laughs> And, I, and we were trying to talk. He was explaining what plotter art and what generative art is, is you're creating an AI that makes the work. And there might not be a direction in regard. It's, it's about the technique. It's the technique of designing artificial intelligence. It's the, it's the technique of designing a program that plots. And so I basically said, so I said, so basically what you're talking about is when you see those videos of a guy, he takes a can of paint pops a couple holes in the bottom, puts on a string to the ceiling and then lays a canvas out and he swings the swings right. the swings yeah. the paint. I said, so that's what digital art is. And he goes, well, yeah, I don't really like that explanation, but yeah, kind of. <laughs> but it was like, it was, it was about the science and the math of what these plot points do. And it was interesting to right. me because yeah. it were like, infuri frankly, it infuriated me. So it was like. Well, hopefully it morphs into something more involved. Well, it's, yeah, it, but some of it's, beautiful some of it's beautiful and I, I don't want to talk too much about it because i want to get brie on here but he has a project he's working with the whitney that's fascinating it's about ai it's about an artist and frankly i'll give you a little teaser so he he there's an artist who created ai art who created an ai program to make art and he made a joke at one point saying i'll be the only artist to ever make a, a new art show post uh you know after i die so they're working on this art show with the AI that this artist created to make new work after the artist had died. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting concept, and um, I'm fascinated by the intentions of man. I'm fascinated intentions of creative people, and I just wonder what our role is. And part of me is just to, like, you know, just keep the ball rolling, I, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to keep asking. Well, did you, is there any questions you had? Anything you want to break up? You know, you, you probably have to take a leak. I got to take a leak. Yeah. I've been sitting here drinking coffee. So, um, no, I think I covered everything. I went down through my list. Um, I think, I think we covered quite a bit through, um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the talking point I wanted to bring up that I talked about before was about the bladesmithing, um, certifications, uh, being really cool. Um, but I think it's, uh, I think being uh, inventive, like, uh, you know, Patagonia in terms of, That's... like, a different perspective is, like, he's the perfect example of what you can do with black Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by the pursuits of man. I'm fascinated by, you know, what our degree of fulfillment is. And I believe that, you know, we're going to get to a point where 
we have a little bit more. I, I, I want people to be a little bit more, uh, have the ability to talk about their intentions. That's what I want. I want the mm-hmm. whole, I want the, I want that. Yeah. Write your mission statements. Be, be able to talk a little bit, you know, I mean, uh, don't pretend you got to, you know, call your girlfriend. I mean, it's like, <laughs> ask you a simple question. Don't pick up your phone <laughs> no. and say you got to call your girlfriend. That was like the weirdest uh, thing I've ever been involved. I'm like, we call your girlfriend. What are you going to call Sunset your... Forge would have taken that guy apart. Oh my God. It was like, it was just like, <laughs> ask you, it's like, it wouldn't have well, been funny. Well, how's the weather? Well, I got to call my girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, what the, get the fuck out of here. Get out of yeah. here, man. Jesse Savage. Jesse Savage Blacksmith is my great friend. He's also one of the teachers at the Center for Mental Arts. He's one of the instructors with me. There are classes available for Jesse's class. Um, and Jesse and Carrie are going to be doing an introductory class down at the Center for Mental Arts. Go check it out. It's worth it. The Center for Mental Arts is uh, extraordinary. It's a cathedral of learning is what it is, really, honestly. Yeah, it's the yes. number one place to be if you want to be there. And they have the best of the best there, and I'll be there too, which is I'm the, I'm the dregs of the best, which is fine. <laughs> uh, my uh, friction folder class is open um, April 1st and 2nd down at, at PA. We'll have a good time. We're and I'll probably record uh, the Full Blast podcast with uh, Pat. I always do. It's always fun. Um, I will be – I'm sending a message out. Guys, do me a favor. Go over to Florentine Kitchen Knives and watch the video that Max Max, uh, Max Mexo made for the class we're teaching over at uh, – uh, in, in Spain. The Barcelona class is sold out, which thank you very much for that. Uh, cosmic drift knives are available. They're available. They're available. I'm, I made enough. I finally got ahead and I made enough that we can send them out. So go get your, go over to faderknives.com. Go buy, buy yourself uh, a knife. Go buy yourself some merch. I got some merch in stock. I'm finally trying to be like a real business where I have stuff in stock. So take advantage while you can. Uh, Jesse Savage is my friend. Uh, go follow Jesse and Carrie. Uh, Jesse Savage Blacksmith on Instagram. He is, you know, he's a, he's a, my good friend and I really appreciate everything you do for the community and i'm appreciative that you're my friend yeah thank you i feel the same way you're the man thanks for having me on oh, too. dude all the time i love it i love it. it's great yeah it was awesome all right guys we will see you next week thanks again jesse see you later this show is brought to you by the makery the podcast network for makers At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.